Nobody questions things in this country anymore. Nobody wants to rock the boat. It's all bullshit, folks. It's all bullshit, and it's bad for you. But we believe them because they're pounded into our heads from the time we're children. Children should be taught to question everything, to question everything they read, everything they hear. Welcome to Question Culture with Brian and Lornette. On each episode, Lornette and I discuss and question conventional wisdom about a topic we believe is important. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Q Culture. That's Q-U-E-C-U-L-T-U-R-E. There we share the links to the documentaries, articles, and books we reference on each episode. On today's episode, we will be discussing debt. How's it going, Lornette? Hey, Brian. Hello, everybody. Um, Lornette Vesto, he, him, bad motherfucker. For you people who hate the pronouns now that it's Pride Month. So um, um, you can check me out at uh, on Twitter, Evolving Man LBV. So you can get my Twitter followers up because um, I, I don't see like the worst far right wing assholes have like 100,000 followers. And then like Brian and I have a, maybe a few thousand. <laughs> so, so we'll get up those Twitter followers. Uh, but uh, I don't know how to go make viral tweets. My wife is good at that. Anyway, check out the Evolving Man Project. That website um, deep dives into many of the topics we discuss here on the Question Culture Podcast and is also home to the Question Culture Podcast. So you can check out other contributors there, including our co-host Brian and other folks uh, discussing um, different topics uh, concerning uh, man, man, masculinity and manhood and uh, topics of the day. And last but not least, you can check me out on Facebook, um, Lornette Vestal, my public Facebook page. And uh, there I post uh, the Question Culture Podcast, other articles from the Man Project, and other uh, current affairs topics. And last but not least, summer is here almost, so if you want to get some good reading in, you can check out my debut novel with my lovely wife, Bernita Haynes, who was a guest on our Supreme Court episode um, called the Fader and Alphas series, with the first book called Even the Faders, and the second book called I and the Alphas. Um, getting rave reviews um, even one of the last week on a work trip one of the um, uh, volunteers that bought a book and her husband was all like man that's very impressive so <laughs> I felt like a, like a, a mini celebrity I'm like oh I just wrote a book it's nothing <laughs> they were very impressed so um, yeah check it out it's good all right so today um, another uplifting topic <laughs> discussing the instrument of our oppression <laughs> um but I think it's important, anyone who's listened to the podcast has heard me and Lurnette say hundreds, if not thousands of times, um, that money is really, capitalism is the root and core of our problems. And this episode is kind of to dissect why that is, because I don't think a lot of people realize, they don't think about the fact that money and how it works is actually a... I don't know. People think of it in simple terms, like I give you cash, you give me a product. It's a it's a bartering system. But the way that money operates in our system, it's a lot deeper than that. And there's a lot more to it. And it's actually the main way that the powers that be use to control us. So we want to kind of, you know, we'll get into a little bit of a deep dive with some finance talk. Um, but it's important because I think it's an important to understand what money is under this current system. It's not just a bartering system. What we have is called fractional reserve banking. Um, So that has a set of rules with it and applies um, certain rules to how money is created, how money is traded. 
And so it's important to understand why. So when people like Lornette and I say, you know, money's the root of all evil, or I'm sure you've heard people say bankers control the world. Um, it, it's important to understand why. So you can, and so you can understand why we need to basically undo this economic system and create a new one. There's no ethical consumption under capitalism. There's going to be no way to save the environment under capitalism. And that's because the rules, the foundation of how the system works is an, it's an oppressive and destructive system at its core. So on this episode, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be able to kind of show why that is. And we got some clips for you on this one. Um, That'll, you know, hopefully shed some light on it. It was very interesting, though, though Brian, uh, just to jump in, um, is that kind of credit and, 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 and debt existed before its modern form in, in capitalism. Um, and there's a great book, uh, and I'm going to always butcher people's names. <laughs> David Greber, I think that's how you say his name. He, he also is the author of Bullshit Jobs. He's also the um, author of a book I talked about a lot. That's a really good book called The Dawn of History. And uh, I like his style because he likes deconstructs conventional wisdom around various top topics. This debt book, um, he talks about this idea of uh, um, basically that um, the barter system and, and the and actual like money, either coins or paper money, um, is far newer than, than debt. And um, the major argument in this book um, imposes uh, that it's an imprecise informal community building indebtedness of human economics is only replaced by the mathematical process firmly enforced debts through introduction of violence usually state sponsored violence in some form of military police so the new form of debt is always uh, sponsored uh, it's always um, maintained and, 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 and managed by uh, the state current what we think of the state now so it could be the state of georgia it could be the united states of america it could be ukraine um, but a state actor like an entity that you know refers to itself as state and usually how they enforce their rules is that the state can lock you up the state can even kill you <laughs> and i know people are like the state would never do that we don't live in communist china well maybe dr king would like to have a word with you <laughs> or jfk because <laughs> um you know yeah, the, the state shot them, you know, and and, and for those people like, oh no, it was um um the the, the guy who assassinated um um Lee Harvey Oswald was the one who shot JFK, but who was the one who shot Dr. King? It was um uh, or, the guy who didn't actually do it. What was his? They name? claimed it's like <laughs> what is it like Earl Ray Jones yeah. or something like that. I forget his name. I forget his I forget his full name, but but the United States government was sued by Dr. King's family in the 1990s and they lost that case because they basically credited the United States government with the led to the assassination of uh, Dr. King. So the state can be the perpetrator. Yeah, James Earl Ray. James Earl Ray. the patsy. Yeah, he was, yeah. He was a fall, fall person. I mean, he probably was a racist son of a gun who probably hated Dr. King, but uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't acting alone well, and all that stuff. Well, well, that's what never added up about that was he was like a poor white dude who was like in prison, but even during the time when that was like the official story that they were spreading, people were like looking into his past and he was a criminal and stuff, but he really like never did. You know, I mean, he was a white dude in the 60s. So, you know, I'm sure he had some racist tendencies. But like when people looked into his past, he wasn't like he wasn't a violent, you know, criminal. like a wreck. Yeah, well, he wasn't like a like a crazy racist who was like, you know, you know, there were so many people at the time, like, you know, 
threatening, you know, Martin Luther King and civil rights organizations. And he never really had like a staunch racist past. So like people, you know, even back then people are like, this didn't, doesn't really add up. You know? Yeah. He was probably just a petty criminal who like did some robbery and stuff like that. But uh, I never, I never looked into that history, but getting back to like debt on uh, the second major argument of this book is that uh, contrary to the standard accounts of the history of money, debt is probably the oldest means of trade with cash and barter transactions being later developments. In the book, he argues that um, it is typically retained its primacy with cash and barter usually limited to situations of low trust involving strangers or those not considered credit credit worthy. Uh, Grober proposes that the second argument follows the first, that in his own words, markets are founded and usually maintained, maintained by systemic state violence through how he goes to show how, in the absence of such violence, they can even come to be seen has the very basis of freedom and autonomy. So basically in his argument in his book, like debt as we know it now, student loan debt, medical debt, and all these other debts that we'll get into are maintained by the state. And if you don't pay your debts, like you can be pretty screwed, um, either through legal fees or, you know, at one time you can go to debtor's prison. And as we'll talk later on, there are fees that poor people have to pay for being poor, which are technically debtor prisons. Um, taste the case of the... Um, God, why am I forgetting his name? Jesus Christ, I feel like an asshole. Um, don't you remember the gentleman from Rocket? The, the guy who uh, who was in Rockers Island and they claim he stole the book bag. Oh, damn, what's his name? Yeah, um, who, he, he, yeah, who ended up killing himself after he got out? Khalif, Khalif, um, I think it was Khalif Browder. And the thing is, that young man, I mean, I guess he he would be a young man to me because I'm like almost forty now, and he he, he unfortunately passed away. Uh, committed suicide like I think before he turned 25 because he had spent like three or four years in Rackers Island which is like a terrible prison in itself and should be destroyed um, and we should treat our prisons prisoners more humanely um, I know that's a crazy thought to say in the United States of America but we should uh, but anyway um, he was basically in prison for being poor like he wasn't he, he never had trial he never was convicted of anything his family and himself he couldn't afford the bill to be out on bond and and that's not the exception. That's the rule. Yes. That's extremely common in America that there are people in prison right now who are just there. Ju- they you know don't even have any charges against them. They're just there because they couldn't post bail. And that, and that's not the case just in the United States. So I know we like to kick the United States. I mean the reason why we do for our listeners is because we claim ourselves to be the the greatest light in the world and we are free democracy. Blah 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 blah. But we have all these hypocrisies in our democracy. But the West is filled with this because they do the same thing in Australia, I believe, where they basically you have debtors prison where like people who can't pay their bond, they go to jail. So if you're rich and you commit a crime, you can even murder somebody. If you got enough money, you can be out free hanging out and stuff awaiting trial. You know, but it should be that way for everybody. And that's the original form of slavery. Like slavery based on race was like a new thing in the 15th, 1600s based off the African slave trade. Where before that, because, you know, racists always love to bring that up too, like, well, white people were slaves and stuff. It's like, well, yeah, that was true, but it was a different form of slavery. And that original form of slavery that was predominant across many cultures around the world was based on debt. It was people who owed a debt and then that they had to serve. And, you know, that we've talked about that in our history episodes, how most of the people that initially came over this country were indentured servants. So they were people that owed debt. Um and so they had to work and, you know, they 
you go back and you can read there's cultures all throughout history i mean it's seeming yeah. like it's the common consensus that like the people that built the the pyramids you know were indentured servants and things like that so yeah when, when i'm blaming capitalism i guess capitalism is just the newest <laughs> sharpening of the blade that has been for a system that has been going on through through all of human history and it's a very ruthless system of sharpening the blade that's the thing because even in those in those times people could you know free their debts and it, and and for the races out there who might be listening to our podcast like well slavery wasn't this like you're saying look slavery in the united states is different for uh, two reasons it was called chattel slavery because the the black slaves african slaves were not seen as human they were actually seen as subhuman and and that it carried on to their children 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 and then we had these ridiculous things where we justified a racial caste system and came up with things like the one drop rule so you have someone who like mariah carey who was you know one of the most famous singers of our era or our times and probably a nice lady or my probably not nice she's a celebrity but she can be she's considered black because like her dad is like half black and like this lady does not look <laughs> anyway shape form black and i know her ex-husband uh, who has like 50 million baby mamas. Uh, Nick Cannon called her African queen, but Nick Cannon is delusional. If, if Mariah Carey is an African queen, then I'm fucking Idris Elba. <laughs> <laughs> and let me assure you, I'm not Idris Elba because I don't get the ladies throwing themselves at me like he probably does. But, you know, I'm not a famous actor and I'm not 6'3 and British. So <laughs> and all these things I'm not. <laughs> but, I, but I digress. So that's the thing. But this, the, And also the second thing about... Um, American slavery, they made it different versus the, 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 the indentured servants who came first because they were white indentured servants and they were indented indentured servants. I mean, they were in, they owed a debt to a Lord or some fancy person with a high title. And once they worked off that debt, then they were, they were free to go or they were incorporated into society with the, with African, with slavery in the United States, when they created the racial caste system to divide the indentured servants versus the slaves, because at one time, the Native Americans who were getting their land stolen from them, the indentured servants who were like getting fucked over because like they could change their debt and they had laws to protect them, but whatever laws to protect your indentured servants were about as ridiculous as the laws they had to protect your slaves, which Brian, they did in both cases. This country did. I'm sure the liberals of the time came up with those nice, instead of ending indentured <laughs> servitude and slavery, we'll just make laws so you can treat your slaves and indentured servants nicer. <laughs> Well, even the Bible has that where, like, it's okay to beat your slave as long as they recover in a few days. <laughs> yeah, like, what? Like, it was a few days. Yeah. Like, you can beat them to an inch of their life, and maybe in six months they recover. But, you know, you pay for them because they're your slaves, so don't, like, kill them. But anyway, right. um, and, and then on top of that, the free land grab of the United States government, taking the land from the Native Americans, breaking all those treaties, and giving them the shittiest land and put their reservations on after they destroyed their culture until it took their land. And then with the African slaves, you had a whole free labor workforce that was reinforced with a racial hierarchy. And you built the capital for the capitalist system that we have today, which created one of the wealthiest empires in the history of mankind. And that same empire that doesn't give anybody health care, housing, also we're not re empire babies. I know you people who love America, rah, 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 it's the greatest country on earth. It really doesn't do right by by its citizens, even inside the United States, let alone across the globe. So, and I think we're starting to learn that more and more as the empire continues to decline. But so to kind of get into it, it's impossible to talk about 
debt without talking about money and currency and the, the U.S. dollar federal notes um, because they themselves are agents of debt. And you had to talk about what we're talking about really is the, the how money works in this society. And that's through the Federal Reserve, which is a central bank of the United States. Um, it was kind of, you know, built off the idea of Europe has many uh, several central banks. And the Federal Reserve, as it stands today, began in 1913 uh, with the Federal Reserve Act. Um, but that was really the third um, iteration of a or third attempt at a central bank in the United States. Um, the first one was founded by um, at the you know towards the start of the country, 1791, um, and it was really pushed forward by Alexander Hamilton. He liked you know central banks in Europe. He was also a rich asshole who, <laughs> you know, it's funny. You know, all these, you know, founding fathers were slave owners and things. So they were all kind of deplorable people in their own way. But Alexander Hamilton was kind of, you know, the rich snooty asshole, uh, you know, amongst them, um, as opposed to. Brian, there is like a Thomas. great play that Obama loves named after Alexander Hamilton. What are you talking <laughs> about? Know. Well, and so that's why he's he's that's why you see him. What is he on the ten dollar bill? Yes. I so rarely use cash anymore. It's like I'm forgetting who's on what. But uh, yeah, that's why he's on the ten dollar bill. And he was a big, strong proponent of having a central bank for the U.S. Um, other founding fathers were against it, uh, like Thomas Jefferson was against it. Um, but ultimately, he got his way, and they we had the first central bank in 1791. Um, however, it only lasted, it was just chartered for 20 years and be, because it was so unpopular and had so many flaws and things, it was actually, um, Congress allowed it to expire on, in 1811. Um, and then there was five more years until we, a new central bank was established. Um, and then that one was ultimately Andrew Jackson when he got el elected, um, you know, when he wasn't, um, brutally murdering Native Americans he was pushing to have the central bank destroyed and not because he had any kind of, you know, moral reasoning. It was just that when he was younger, he sold a bunch of land for um, some paper, some paper money. But then that bank went, um, you know, belly up. And then so he lost. So, and so the money became worthless. And that was kind of why <laughs> business people at the time were so interested in having a central bank, because it was, you know, early on in the country, it really was the Wild West. If you don't have a central bank, then you have individual banks all printing their own currency and using it. And there's no protections for if things fall through and stuff. So it really was kind of crazy. And so business interests were, you know, they wanted to make sure that, you know, people, you know, what they were buying and selling and things could be backed up. Um, and even back in the day, the, the first two iterations of the central bank, the money was backed up by gold. So really, when, when you had paper money, what you said was this is an IOU for actual gold is basically what paper money originally started at. And I know a lot of like libertarians think like they think the problem is the Federal Reserve, the frank, you know, the the fractional banking system that we have now. That's the problem yeah. that money isn't backed up by gold. It's backed up by the money supply. Um, but I mean, while I agree in an extent like that makes slightly more sense because at least it's a tangible thing. It's still fucking stupid to base your whole society around like pretty shiny little rocks that we get out of the ground. You know, like that that's still a stupid way to organize. Oh, yeah, and not to mention, you, Brian, I mean, I watched this uh, science documentary and they said all if you took the world's um, amount of pure gold, 
it would be basically the size of the base of the Statue of Liberty. And as someone who saw the Statue of Liberty in person going to New York for the first time, as a kid, I thought it was huge. And then watching a Ghostbuster movie when they made it come to life, I thought it was huge. And then I finally saw it and I was like, that's pretty small. It's not that big. <laughs> yeah, like, it's not that big. I was kind of disappointed. Like, I thought it would be bigger. Uh, so I know the New Yorkers are going to be like, yo, son, then we'll be talking about a New York God. Yo, it's the greatest <laughs> country on earth, yo. But anyway, New York is not a country or, or a state. Well, it's a state, but it's a city. Anyway, the Statue of Liberty, the base of the Statue of Liberty, that's how much gold we have on earth. Like it's a small amount. So basically, and obviously America doesn't have all the gold because the Europeans stole a lot of it too. <laughs> so it's switched between the Americans the, and the Europeans. Um, all the gold. This is uh, this is kind of unrelated, but do you know about how we're running out of helium in the in the world? So helium is obviously it's the second element on the periodic table. It's the second most common element in the universe, but we only have a limited amount on earth and we're actually running out of it and like i can't remember when it was but like we're gonna run out of it pretty freaking soon and it's crazy to me because like helium is used for a lot of important things like it's used in in uh, mri machines and things like that and so i think it's funny we're like running out of it yet you can still go to party city and like fill up balloons with like helium and like make funny voices and shit so i'm like it's just interesting to me that like (laughs) You know, people aren't being like, hey, maybe we shouldn't be wasting this valuable resource on, like, blowing up balloons. But whatever. I digress. Side. Check it out because it's, like, unbelievable, but it's true. That's, We're running out of helium. Sounds like humans. But, um, so, yeah, basing, <laughs> off, basing things off the gold standard is what they called it, correct? Yes, correct. Um, So, I mean, you know, I'm sure businessmen just like I did thought that that was kind of dumb. So they came up with an even worse (laughs) system, but an even better, like I mentioned, you know, sharpening your blade, an even better method of control, which is called fractional reserve banking. And that's done through the Federal Reserve Bank. And the Federal Reserve Bank is kind of, it's a weird institution because there's supposed government oversight of it but really it operates like a a private institution so i mean on on wikipedia if you just look up the federal reserve bank it says it's composed of several layers it is governed by the presidential appointed board of governors of the federal reserve board 12 regional federal reserves banks located in cities throughout the nation regulate and oversee privately owned commercial banks nationally chartered commercial banks are required to hold stock and can elect some of the board members but the Federal Reserve um, of each Federal Reserve Bank and in each region. Um, But they do quote, um, they say, although an instrument of the United, the U.S. government, the Federal Reserve System considers itself an independent central bank because its monetary policy decisions do not have to be approved by the president or anyone in the executive or legislative legislative branches of government. It does not receive funding appropriated by Congress, and the terms of the members of the Board of Governors span multiple presidents and congressional terms. So this is the Federal Reserve. It is uh, it is a bank, so it does work off profit, and it is not you know, it appoints its own board members, and then the president appoints some board members. So they're, it's not an elected institution. It's not a democratic institution in any way. It really is a private institution. Um, so it's not, so I think when people think of like money, they think like, oh, this is coming from the government. It's really not. It's a, it's a private entity. It's its own corporation. Um, and like I mentioned, the Federal Reserve does not back its money by any gold or any other material. It's a fractional reserve bank, um, which basically means it the the 
it basically boils down to meaning that inflation is inherent into the system and that money the um the money is backed by other money in the money supply and actually what i'm going to do here um is share a clip because i think um this person peter joseph who i've talked about the podcast several times um i think he's one of the brightest um minds of anyone living right now um definitely check out all his work with the zeitgeist movement um he's got his own podcast revolutionary revolution now um but this clip that we're going to share is actually from his second documentary that he made, Zeitgeist Addendum. And he talks about how money is made according because the um, Federal Reserve put out this pamphlet, Money Mechanics, when it was formed, describing how their money creation system works. So he's going to discuss that a little bit. And the reason he knows about so much about this is because he actually worked as a day trader um, on Wall Street. He's, he said, because I guess he went to school as a percussionist, uh, then couldn't really make any money, so he wanted to find a job where he didn't have a boss. Uh, so he got into trading. So he learned all about this in finance. And you'll see in the clip, he kind of talks about how economics is kind of purposely made to seem so complex and so, oh my God, we can't understand that understand this you know only wizards and geniuses can understand the intricacies of a national economy but really that's just a facade um because the the actual what's actually going on is simple is you know he'll break it down into simple um terms to understand and when you do you really kind of see the sinister nature of how our banking system works so i'll play that clip right now A number of years ago, the Central Bank of the United States, the Federal Reserve, produced a document entitled Modern Money Mechanics. This publication detailed the institutionalized practice of money creation as utilized by the Federal Reserve and the web of global commercial banks it supports. On the opening page, the document states its objective. The purpose of this booklet is to describe the basic process of money creation in a fractional reserve banking system. It then proceeds to describe this fractional reserve process through various banking terminology. A translation of which goes something like this. The United States government decides it needs some money, so it calls up the Federal Reserve and requests, say, $10 billion. The Fed replies, saying, sure, we'll buy $10 billion in government bonds from you. So the government takes some pieces of paper, paints some official-looking designs on them, and calls them Treasury bonds. Then it puts a value on these bonds to the sum of $10 billion and sends them over to the Fed. In turn, the people at the Fed draw up a bunch of impressive pieces of paper themselves, only this time calling them Federal Reserve Notes, also designating a value of $10 billion to the set. The Fed then takes these notes and trades them for the bonds. Once this exchange is complete, the government then takes the $10 billion in Federal Reserve Notes and deposits it into a bank account. And, upon this deposit, the paper notes officially become legal tender money, adding $10 billion to the U.S. money supply. And there it is. $10 billion in new money has been created. Of course, this example is a generalization, for, in reality, this transaction would occur electronically, with no paper used at all. In fact, only 3% of the U.S. money supply exists in physical currency. The other 97% essentially exists in computers alone. Now, government bonds are, by design, instruments of debt. And when the Fed purchases these bonds, with money it essentially created out of thin air, the government is actually promising to pay back that money to the Fed. 
In other words, the money was created out of debt. This mind-numbing paradox of how money or value can be created out of debt or a liability will become more clear as we further this exercise. So the exchange has been made and now $10 billion sits in a commercial bank account. Here is where it gets really interesting. For as based on the fractional reserve practice, that $10 billion deposit instantly becomes part of the bank's reserves, just as all deposits do. And regarding reserve requirements, as stated in modern money mechanics, a bank must maintain legally required reserves equal to a prescribed percentage of its deposits. It then quantifies this by stating, under current regulations, the reserve requirement against most transaction accounts is 10%. This means that with a $10 billion deposit, 10% or 1 billion is held as the required reserve while the other 9 billion is considered an excessive reserve and can be used as the basis for new loans. Now, it is logical to assume that this 9 billion is literally coming out of the existing 10 billion dollar deposit. However, this is actually not the case. What really happens is that the 9 billion is simply created out of thin air on top of the existing 10 billion dollar deposit. This is how the money supply is expanded. As stated in Modern Money Mechanics, of course they, the banks, do not really pay out loans from the money they receive as deposits. If they did this, no additional money would be created. What they do when they make loans is to accept promissory notes, loan contracts, in exchange for credits, money, to the borrower's transaction accounts. In other words, the nine billion can be created out of nothing simply because there is a demand for such a loan and that there is a $10 billion deposit to satisfy the reserve requirements. Now, let's assume that somebody walks into this bank and borrows the newly available $9 billion. They will then most likely take that money and deposit it into their own bank account. The process then repeats, for that deposit becomes part of the bank's reserves. 10% is isolated and in turn 90% of the 9 billion or 8.1 billion is now available as newly created money for more loans. And of course that 8.1 can be loaned out and redeposited creating an additional 7.2 billion to 6.5 billion to 5.9 billion etc. This deposit money creation loan cycle can technically go on to infinity. The average mathematical result is that about 90 billion dollars can be created on top of the original 10 billion. In other words, for every deposit that ever occurs in the banking system, about nine times that amount can be created out of thin air. So, now that we understand how money is created by this fractional reserve banking system, a logical yet elusive question might come to mind. What is actually giving this newly created money value? The answer? the money that already exists. The new money essentially steals value from the existing money supply. For the total pool of money is being increased irrespective to demand for goods and services. And as supply and demand finds equilibrium, prices rise, diminishing the purchasing power of each individual dollar. This is generally referred to as inflation. And inflation is essentially a hidden tax on the public. What is the advice that you generally get? And that is, inflate the currency. They don't say debase the currency. They don't say devalue the currency. They don't say cheat the people who are saved. They say lower the interest rates. The real deception 
is when we distort the value of money. When we create money out of thin air, we have no savings, and yet there's so-called capital. So my question boils down to this. How in the world can we expect to solve the problems of inflation, that is, the increase in the supply of money, with more inflation? Of course, it can't. The fractional reserve system of monetary expansion is inherently inflationary. For the act of expanding the money supply without there being a proportional expansion of goods and services in the economy will always debase a currency. In fact, a quick glance at the historical values of the US dollar versus the money supply reflects this point definitively, for the inverse relationship is obvious. One dollar in 1913 required $21.60 in 2007 to match value. That is a 96% devaluation since the Federal Reserve came into existence. Now, if this reality of inherent and perpetual inflation seems absurd and economically self-defeating, hold that thought, for absurdity is an understatement in regard to how our financial system really operates. For in our financial system, money is debt. And debt is money. Here is a chart of the US money supply from 1950 to 2006. Here is a chart of the US national debt for the same period. How interesting it is that the trends are virtually the same. For the more money there is, the more debt there is. The more debt there is, the more money there is. To put it a different way, every single dollar in your wallet is owed to somebody by somebody. For remember, the only way the money can come into existence is from loans. Therefore, if everyone in the country were able to pay off all debts, including the government, there would not be one dollar in circulation. In fact, the last time in American history the national debt was completely paid off was in 1835 after President Andrew Jackson shut down the central bank that preceded the Federal Reserve. In fact, Jackson's entire political platform essentially revolved around his commitment to shut down the central bank, stating at one point, the bold efforts the present bank has made to control the government are but premonitions of the fate that awaits the American people should they be deluded into a perpetuation of this institution or the establishment of another like it. Unfortunately, his message was short-lived and the international bankers succeeded to install another central bank in 1913 the Federal Reserve. And as long as this institution exists, perpetual debt is guaranteed. Now, so far we have discussed the reality that money is created out of debt through loans. These loans are based on a bank's reserves and reserves are derived from deposits. And through this fractional reserve system, any one deposit can create nine times its original value, in turn debasing the existing money supply raising prices in society. And since all this money is created out of debt and circulated randomly through commerce, people become detached from their original debt and a disequilibrium exists where people are forced to compete for labor in order to pull enough money out of the money supply to cover their costs of living. As dysfunctional and backwards as all of this might seem, there is still one thing we have omitted from this equation. And it is this element of the structure which reveals the truly fraudulent nature of the system itself.
the application of interest. When the government borrows money from the Fed, or when a person borrows money from a bank, it almost always has to be paid back with accrued interest. In other words, almost every single dollar that exists must be eventually returned to a bank with interest paid as well. But if all money is borrowed from the central bank and is expanded by commercial banks through loans, only what would be referred to as the principal is being created in the money supply. So then, where is the money to cover all of the interest that is charged? Nowhere. It doesn't exist. The ramifications of this are staggering, for the amount of money owed back to the banks will always exceed the amount of money that is available in circulation. This is why inflation is a constant in the economy, for new money is always needed to help cover the perpetual deficit built into the system, caused by the need to pay the interest. What this also means is that mathematically, defaults and bankruptcy are literally built into the system and there will always be poor pockets of society that get the short end of the stick. An analogy would be a game of musical chairs, for once the music stops, somebody is left out to dry. And that's the point. It invariably transfers true wealth from the individual to the banks. For if you are unable to pay for your mortgage, they will take your property. This is particularly enraging when you realize that not only is such a default inevitable due to the fractional reserve practice, but also because of the fact that the money that the bank loaned to you didn't even legally exist in the first place. Yeah, so I think there's a couple key points that he kind of points out in there. And I, I, I love his analogy of it being like musical chairs that because oh, yeah. money is because money is based on debt, it's built into the system that somebody's going to be left out, that there are going to be poor people that people are going to get foreclosed on because we're paying this debt that it's unpayable to be paid back. So it's built into the system that you're going to have debt, that you're going to have inflation, that some people are going to be on the losing end. And I think that's what's so sinister is that any kind of money problems is always put on the individual. It's always, oh, you didn't work hard enough. You didn't save properly. Exactly. You were frivolous with your money. It's your fault. I hear this all. Yeah, exactly. And I hear that my dad's a big, my dad's always, oh, I'm socially liberal, but I'm fiscally conservative. And that's showing that he buys into this, that finances, you know, it's a product of, of your own personal behavior, not not the reality that it's actually you're part of a system where it's built in that there will be winners and losers. Yeah, and we'll talk about this a little later in the podcast. That's absolutely bullshit because there's been mechanisms play, put in place by society to historically ban or undermine certain groups of people from access to uh, wealth and wealth gaining. And even home ownership and auto loans, um, and I even have a personal story as I'll, I'll talk about a little later. So, kind of talking about the this creation of the Federal Reserve, we we see kind of like has money, all money that's in circulation is based off other money that's owed uh, from the clip that we played, and then that plays into something that's very real nowadays, because um, it seems like this only becomes a big, big uh, political theater when it's a democratic president and then the republicans take over the house and then there's a showdown over the national debt and all the republicans is like we have to be fiscally responsible and we pay our debts and I mean, my question is always like who the fuck do we owe this debt to jupiter because i'm like <laughs> can't we just fucking erase it and there's no we, we we fucking just print money when like the fucking economy's collapsing so 
that the Federal Reserve can print money on demand when they just fucking need it. Like, oh, we'll need another, we need a bailout. The company's coming, like, we need a bailout. We fuck things up. Can you bail us out? Now, the regular people, if you fuck up, you're, you're on the street and you're homeless, fuck you. Um, you better hope that you can, you know, you look cute or something so you can be a stripper or something. Or, you know, um, or like, you know, that you got some type of marketable skill when you fucking fuck up. And hopefully you're not injured or nothing like that. Because then you're extra screwed because you get SSI. But they'll give you so little bit of fucking benefits, as our, our buddy Nate uh, told us on the uh, Schizophrenic Read podcast. That you know you'll still be um, you'll still be struggling, so, but but when corporations fuck up, they get a bailout. So let's talk about the national well, debt. So well, I mean, so that's the funny part is that like it could we could you know we always hear the national debt, the national debt. I mean, what is it? it's up to? It's ever increasing, but it's up to like thirty one trillion dollars right yeah. now, which amounts to about ninety five thousand dollars per person. Um, that could we it is all made up and that's what's so frustrating is like especially when you don't read history you think how things are now is how they have to be but really our entire financial system is completely made up and you know the republicans are always trying to cut benefits because oh the debt ceiling and blah 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 it's funny that like they can send hundreds of millions of dollars to to funnel weapons to ukraine but then when we need health care up we need to cut that up we need to cut so we can't afford it like someone else has to pay for it and then dumbass american citizens like i'm not paying for someone's student loans to be canceled i'm not paying for someone's health care and this is like we have fucking kids going to lunch debt which we'll talk about a little later on we can't even feed the fucking children well because some rich kid might get over get over i'm like they're fucking children they can't they they can't decide what family they're born into some might be a few, a few of them might be lucky to be born into like parents who are billionaires, but a vast majority of kids born in this country, they're just like working class and middle class families that are, you know, barely get stuff themselves and we can't even feed those kids. But, you know, well, we, we got to get that defense budget because we need some new fucking F, F, you know, F-18s and shit that don't fucking fly. <laughs> <laughs> and so when you people you know you say like who do we owe this money to it's who we owe it to is the people who control the 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 multinational corporations who control these central banks who control our government yep. this is and this is why they won't erase the debt is because it's a form of control they want to control people to so they have power and they can get what they want and so they don't want to get rid of these debts because it's a way to keep people in line because as he says in the clip when you when you're in debt, you submit to employment, and really, it's an it's a new form of slavery. You know, w- w- the wage slave. And when you're a wage slave, you know, slavery back in the day, you had to the 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 plantation owners had to pay to house and feed. But when you're a wage slave, you have to feed and house yourself. So it's really and you know, and no one person invented this system, but it's it was over you know over time being you know un- living under systems with kings and queens, and then the merchant class took over and everything, and they fine tuned these ways to control people and get what they want, and it's created this system of of wage slaves and of debt to control people to control their behavior and. That's why I get frustrated when, you know, like libertarians especially will be like, oh, you have free will. Like you can choose your, you know, whatever to do, whatever you want. And it's like, no, you can't because you always have this looming over your head that you need money or that you have some debt to pay. So it's not a free system where you have free mobility. You have to subjugate yourself in order to survive. Yeah, I always think of the comedian Bill Hicks and he's like, you know, if, if the United States is such a free country, why don't we try moving somewhere without any money and see how far you get? It won't get to very far. And if you do move somewhere with no money, um, 
you're going to be on the street. And it kind of shows a place of privilege if you're like, well, you can choose any job you want. And like, yeah, maybe people that grew up like me who had a middle class, you know, parents had a middle class income. You know, I could choose what major I wanted when I went to school and things. But there's a lot of people born into poverty. They work in it. They're in areas with very few jobs. Their parents have to work all the time. They have no money. So they have to start working as soon as possible. So you just have to find a job that's close to you. You don't have the means to travel or go out of state and go to something you just have to take the the you know the the first job that comes along cuz you need you're so poor you need money right away so and then you you know once you get you know start a job and are in a system you get involved in it and you you know you you know you just you're just kind of stuck in it in a way so it kind of even shows a place of privilege to even think that like oh you can choose to do whatever you want when there's you know more, seems like half the global population at least is is locked you know into these these jobs because they were born into poverty well brian i mean this is the the major thing all right you either you need to just you know go to school get a college <laughs> degree and get a good job now if you happen to have so affordable which, but right. if you have student loan debt well you should have just graduated from high school and got a job and got a real job at the high school i mean even at that and at that job paid you low wages, maybe you should have went to college then. So either way, stop complaining. It's your fault. <laughs> See, <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah. never winning. It's a never. It's, it never win. You can you can go to college and get screwed with student loan debt because most people don't have mommy and daddy's money, or you can go work a regular job after high school. And if you're working at Walmart, McDonald's, or Burger King, um, unlike other countries that are highly unionized and, and pay their employees fair wages these ultra rich corporations based here in the united states pay their workers um pennies and sometimes they pay on the minimum wage and believe me if you're a server you get paid below the minimum wage um, because the restaurant industry is very notorious for lobbying with the federal government to not raise the minimum wage because they might have to play the servers people who serve your food and what's also crazy and you used to work as a server brian is how people can be assholes to servers i remember years ago i was on a date uh, with this girl I was uh, seeing at NIU. This is my single days. Uh, and she, we, we went to a, a restaurant, sit-down restaurant. Um, this was at Baker Square. Don't you remember that restaurant in DeKalb? Like, um, by, the, uh, by the convention center? Was that break, Baker Square? No, it was... I don't think it was... It was a sit-down restaurant. Was, I think it was yeah, Baker Square. I think yeah, it's yeah. still fucking there. I just saw it when I was there last year. But anyway, I think it's still there, too. But anyway, like, she was being an asshole to the server. I'm like, I'm like I don't want to eat the food anymore because, uh, you know sit back your plate like three or four times being an asshole uh, he's gonna spit in the food <laughs> i had a childhood friend like that who was like a nice guy in all aspects but he was like very like demeaning to like servers it was so weird and i think th- i think that's kind of in american culture working class people are like picked on you know and just subjugated by societies to such a degree i think they like subconsciously like like when they go to a restaurant that's like the one time in their life where they have like you know like servants who are like you know waiting on their beck and call and stuff and so i think that it's kind of like a people get like a sick pleasure from like oh like you know look at me i'm the one like being served and stuff oh, yeah, I, think I, I think that's, that's why like, like some of these assholes be, are know? so mad about the lockdowns in 2020 it's early 2021 because they're like i can't go to a restaurant order order around people i'm like oh no you fucking stay home and cook your own fucking food Maybe have your husband or wife order you around to cook some fucking food. And they don't like that. They want to be the boss. They want to be treating people like shit. So you got the national debt and you have inflation, which we're going through hyperinflation right now. Um, 
we can all attest. Anybody listen to this podcast, go to the grocery store, go to the gas station. I mean, even I was in San Francisco last week and just, I spent, I got like, I went to a sushi restaurant. It was like a, a ramen restaurant. And it wasn't nothing fancy or anything like that. This wasn't like super bougie. This is a regular, like people were in there getting fucking shit faced. So it wasn't nothing fancy. Like they were getting fucking drunk. Uh, one guy was bu- about to bust his ass. I'm like it's only Wednesday. Holy shit. Hopefully it's his birthday. But anyway, it was like 40 bucks. And I didn't even get any alcoholic beverages because um, I tried not to drink during the weekdays. Uh, try not to. It's, 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 a, it's a struggle. We're all working on self-improvements, people. Uh, but it was like 40 bucks to get like dinner. And my wife and I, when we go out to restaurants nowadays, we can spend easily $70, $80. And this is not like fancy five-star restaurants. This is like regular ass, like sit-down restaurants, local restaurants. And then you go to the grocery store and food, you know, you spend at least $50 on like one bag of groceries. And if you have kids, you're spending like four or five hundred dollars on groceries. Even though they just even though they just cut SNAP benefits because, you know, fuck the poor people. We gotta pay our debts. <laughs> and so in in a in a fractional reserve banking system, inflation happens because you have it, the value of money is based on the money supply. So anytime the country is getting too indebted, you'll see it all the time. The Federal Reserve was okay, we're gonna print more money then so that there's more money in the money supply. But then that devalues the currency, so that's why things cost more than they did before. That's typically how inflation works. The inflation right now is interesting because it's almost it almost has nothing to do with that whatsoever. It's just pure corporate greed. And it's just that so there's no money in the money supply because literally rich people are hoarding it all. And I think I said this on the last podcast. What would really happen on the last episode, um, what really happened was... You had all these, the powers that be were so pissed because we stopped consuming during COVID. You know, we stayed in our, our houses and enjoyed ourselves. We didn't have to work. And they were so pissed that they were losing off on all that profit. Once they opened things up again, they wanted to make all their money back. So they jacked up the prices to everything. And then what they realized when they jacked up all the prices to make all the profit back there was no resistance from the population. U.S. The U.S. population is so fucking docile. It's insane to me that we never resist these things. So the corporations are like, well, shit, if no one's going to like come for our heads, then we might as well just keep the prices high. And that's really what happens. And we'll share some studies. There's, there's plenty of examples of how... Because, you know, they were blaming it on supply chain issues and things, which were doing, which were true during COVID, but that is, has all recovered now. So they're getting these products, they're getting them made as cheap and transferred as cheap as they were before, but now they're just, they kept, kept the prices high, so now they're just taking up all the profit. So all the American, so all average Americans are poorer than ever, but all the fucking, you know, all, if you look at corporate profits and everything, they're through the roof. They're record high numbers. Yet none of that money is given back to the people. Yeah, and there's a great documentary we'll share um, after once this podcast goes live. Um, it's on Frontline. You can actually watch it on YouTube. It's called The Power of the Fed. And they talk about the 2008 crash. And they also talk about the current, um, the, 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 the almost crash of 2020 with the coronavirus pandemic. But what the Fed was doing was uh, doing this thing called qualitative, qualitative easing. And they explained it far better than I will. Um, but they were going this thing where they were like printing a lot of money, injecting it into the, uh, into the, the, the system. But these rich assholes, instead of like, the idea was, you know, they, they inject all this money, they give it to the banks, the banks give it to companies, companies hire more people, 
and and starve off unemployment, high unemployment, because that's not good for society um, with a bunch of people unemployed. And the, the, they didn't do that, though. These companies, they were taking risky behavior, tanking the economy, getting bailed out, and then having the Federal Reserve come in and inject the system with more money. And then these companies are taking that money and hoarding it themselves, whether it's these banks, whether it's these major corporations, giving themselves bonuses. And they weren't really hiring people. And if they were, they were keeping their wages completely stagnant. So it wasn't a rising tide lifting all boats. It was really this idea of trickle-down economics. Although what trickled down to the peasants were like pennies um, in their boots on our neck. And we did the same thing in 2008 with the bailouts, with the Bush bailouts that were extended by Obama. We did the same thing with Trump, with the Trump bailouts of um, the pandemic era. And and his insane tax cuts that like 90 percent of it went to like the point oh one percent. Exactly. So basically, um, and, and, you know, they call in and you have the conspiracy theorists who are like the coronavirus was like purposely created to like kill off everybody and call it the great recess reset. But really what the what the powers that be and the, the rich, the uber rich saw was the opportunity to make still even more money. And what we should call it is the great not the great reset, the great ripoff. Because if you look, there's historic there's documented evidence. All you got to do is Google or um, go on Yahoo or Google or, you know, if you you cool hipsters out there who use Bing, you can check it out, too. And they show you the transfer of wealth during the coronavirus pandemic, how I think the, the richest one uh, percent in this country, their wealth grew by three trillion where the rec- regular people lost wages. <laughs> during this pandemic so let's talk about some of the debts that they put us regular people well, in before but go ahead well, brian and, and i and yeah and i just want to add and the reason that they're a the banks are able to do this is because all the regulation over that industry has been destroyed cap that's the funny thing about like capitalism is like it'll destroy itself and that's what started happening in the 1920s uh, you know with the great uh, depression in 1929 um, but what happened, so then FDR was elected and he was like, look, if we don't start giving the average people something, there isn't going to be any capitalism to run. They're going to come for our heads. So he enacted, and you know, they were called New Deal Democrats at the time, him and other politicians, um, and, and enacted all these rules to kind of these support pillars to make sure that Wall Street um, banks couldn't, you know, comp- do outrageous shit like they do now and that they were doing in the 20s. And it worked fabulously after the 30s and the 40s, 50s, 60s. That was the boom of the American empire. The middle class grew in the country like never before. But then slowly since the 70s and especially since Reagan, it's been on steroids. They've slowly just all those laws. They've just started repealing them one after one. Glass-Steagall, which separates um, commercial banking from um, investment banking, Um you know, with, with all these all these laws and all these acts were slowly just ripped away. And so now we're back to where we were pre-Great Depression. I, and I kind of consider, I think we're living in a depression now. They just know not to call it anymore. Now it's just recession after recession where nothing ever recovers. Um, exactly. But yeah, so, so that's why, you know, the deregulation is why this is, you know, is able to happen nowadays. Yeah, even though libertarians and Republicans will be like, we deregulation is what hurts the economy. Where we, 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 but... But deregulation actually led to these. Um, well, basically, if you're a millennial, your whole adult life has been marred by economic downturns, not to mention all the other crazy shit that's went on <laughs> yeah. in between yeah. the last 20 years. But economic downturns and tax cuts for the rich 
have been um, ways for these rich assholes to keep in, in, enriching themselves and the politicians are aiding and abetting at every step of the way. And not just Republicans, not just so-called libertarians, um, Democrats too have been part of this. It's, 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 a big, it's a big club, like George Carlin said, and you ain't in it. Yep. All right, so which uh, form of debt do you want? You want to do student loan debt first since we already did a whole episode about that one? We'll just talk about yeah, it. Yeah, let's start talking start talk student loan debt. Yeah, student loan debt is um, very interesting because at one time it didn't exist, but now it does. Um, I have my theory about that, but... Um, Ooh, what's your theory? Let's hear it. Well, so you know in the 60s, like the anti-war movement, they had the draft and then the anti-war movement started and it was like primarily like high school and college students who were really like out there like fuck that because they were the ones who had to go fight the fucking bullshit war in Vietnam. Um, mm-hmm. So I think in the 50s and 60s when we had the boom, economic boom, and it was only for certain groups of people. You had a few middle class black people, but thanks to segregation and redlining, we were left out of that. And even the New Deal policies, the deal with the South that FDR did, left a lot of African Americans out of the New Deal. So we weren't able to grow wealth in that time period like our, our white counterparts because of racism. But I And I just let me in, let me interject real quick and I do want to that is true for every form of debt that we're going to talk about is is disproportionately affects black and brown communities. So that's why when we talk about when people say racism is the fabric of this country, that's what we're talking about is all these little mechanisms of debt and finance are used to disproportionately hurt black and brown communities and have through the entire history of the country. Yep. So just keep that in mind as we go through each one. Okay. Sorry, Lornette, continue. Yeah. But, um, what I, what I think it is, is that once that happened, um, they, the, the powers that be kind of saw that the, 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 this youth were leading like revolutionary movements and stuff like that. And they, they were in college they had time to think and like learn and university at that time was probably what it really meant to be, which is university, like universal. So you learn about all these different topics, whether it's mathematics, whether it's history, whether it's literature, and you have time to think and learn how to think critically. And, then, and when you start thinking critically, you start questioning things. And the 60s generation, the baby boomers start questioning everything. Uh, and, and the name of our podcast, Question Culture. Yay. So. We are descendants of those boomers, um, so and many of them uh, got old and sold out, um, um, sold out and became the man themselves. Um, but I think with that student movements in the 1960s and 70s, they had to get young people invested in the society. And what's and since they're not young, they're too young to buy a house. You got to be like 18, and most 18 year olds, the jobs nowadays, you can't fucking be 18 to buy a house. Good fucking luck. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, unless you're like somehow a multi-millionaire, multi-millionaire like football or basketball player <laughs> or you're like you have an amazing OnlyFans and you make like a million dollars but that's like not any that doesn't happen anymore so <laughs> for the most part if you're 18 you're not buying a house uh, that's for older people nowadays and older and older because less and less people the younger they are they're not making as much money as their parents generation but I think they created student loan had you know for twofold you have more women and people of color buying uh, coming to college in the 1960s and 70s. So in the 70s, after you know you struck down all those Jim Crow laws, and formal segregation got upended, and then more women entered the workforce, uh, and more women were entering college. And the powers that be was like, look at all the shit that happened in the 60s. Look at all this shit we got for you know the draft. So we're gonna get rid of the draft, 
and we're going to get students that you want to, we're going to make the, it harder to get access to higher education. So we're going to start charging tuition. So since like the 1980s, so the last 40 plus years, the college tuition has went up by like 3,000, meaning like 300%, the average cost. And uh, a, a perfect example is my uncle is in his 60s. So he's about like 23 or four years older than me. So, you know, when I was born, you know, I was born, at, you know, he was like a, a young adult. Um, but he said he went to college in the late 70s, early, early 80s. And he said during the summer, he would work a summer job. And that money he made from his summer job would pay for his books and tuition, both all of it. A summer fucking job, which is insane, dude. That and, is insane. and 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 Brian, he went to university. He went to U of I. He went to University of Illinois, Champaign Urbana, Urbana, which is like a pretty great school in the nineteen eighties and late seventies. You could like go there for pretty cheap, but now you don't. So if you got students who are invested in student loan debt. Then they're thinking, like, I got to get a job and be a productive member of society because I got to pay back this student loan. And it gets people invested in the system, just like if you own a home. You don't want your country bombed if you own a home. Like, so you're invested in the country. You want it to succeed. But, like, younger people can't buy homes or couldn't afford homes as the economy changed. So you got to get them invested with student loan debt. And you also got to block out certain people from accessing higher education because that might level the playing field. And it's uh, pri- and it's the primary form of military recruitment yes. nowadays. Yes. Is poor people, oh, you want to get an education? Come, you know, join up. Go kill some people. Maybe you'll survive, and then you can go to school. Yeah, and then what's all fucked about these colleges is you have, like, March Madness every March. We got these Division One students playing these uh, sports at damn near a professional level, and only, like, 1% of those student athletes in all college sports actually make it to the pros. And yet a lot of these student athletes, top athletes, you know, it was a few years ago. It was like the one uh, basketball team, the one national champion. A couple of the players were like, yeah, we got to like ration our food. <laughs> so they're like fucking, yeah. and, like, oh. and they're the lucky ones because they get like tuition free. And they're still getting fucked because like they're not, they don't pay those students because they're like, oh my, we can't pay them. They're student athletes. And they're making millions. And these college, these colleges could definitely give all their students reduced tuition or free tuition. But that's not going to happen. Well, Lornette, I think it's safe to say I wouldn't even call that a theory. I think that's exactly what happened. <laughs> I agree with you 100%. It it benefits the powers that be in so many ways to have people indentured for military recruitment to to like like you said to just get people so they have to subjugate themselves as soon as possible. I know I mean I know I felt that way as soon as I graduated college. I like took the first job that I could get cuz I, you know, was so poor. Um and it's kind of crazy like looking it, it, it's insane the amount of money that it requires for college. Like, you know, you and me, we we both worked like, yeah, full-time jobs because we had school, but we were working a lot of the time we were, you know, not in class. And that was barely enough to, you know, it, it wasn't even enough to like cover books basically at that time. And I think about like, what it costs if, now, you know, my white, what, like what college costs now compared to when we went. Oh, I mean, not, it's even worse. Yeah, it's, it's getting worse and worse every year. But I just think about, like, all right, so, like, my wife, Megan, became a teacher. Like, that's not, like, some high prestigious job that, sh- you know, it's not a doctor or lawyer that should require, like, insane amount of schooling and time. Yet she's still paying, we're, th- we're 36 now, she's still paying back her student loans. 
And she's, she's like very, she's, she, you know, if you want to talk about like individual responsibility, she is the most fiscally responsible person I know where she's been paying that shit back. She's good at saving her money, all that kind of stuff. And she's still fucking paying that shit back at 36. So it's just. Did she apply for the public service loan forgiveness stuff? Yeah, but that was like, it ended up being like a thousand dollars or some shit. The public service loan forgiveness? I mean, I don't know, dude. Yeah, she's been looking, she's always hopping on she's got like little things here and there and stuff too like different programs to like ease some she of it should because but. he's a freaking teacher she should get like she worked in the public sector like a public school for like 10 years she should be able to get her fucking debt like forgiven nah dude you know there's always loopholes oh things. i i believe it, me know, i know buyer, because, buyer, buyer beware <laughs> oh i know they they gave me a loophole they're like well technically your company has a different ien number so therefore you're not you only qualify to this amount of time it's right. such bullshit i'm right. like but you say I work in the public sector. This is not. I'm not working for profit. I'm working in the pri- public sector. I work at a nonprofit. I work for the government, the state government. It's bullshit. But even worse now, Brian, the student loan debt. And they're like, I think it's like 1.5 trillion in student loan debt that Bernie Sanders said if he was elected, he would forgive what is executive order, which means Biden could do the same thing. But we're not because that's socialism, and God forbid we bail out fucking regular people with only like one point. You know, we bail out regular everyday people, but you know, we bail out. We gave the, we give the banks, you know, and the and the companies that fuck up the economy, you know, bail us all the time. You know, but but they're job creators. But these are the people who work the jobs. These are the people that that their that student loan debt burden is is released from them. They're going to spend that money in other parts of the economy. So capitalists don't even do capitalism right. Well, and the other thing is, even if you didn't, because I hear people who like, oh, I went to a trade school. It was dumb of you to go to college. You shouldn't even have gone there. One, there's professions that require there. There have to be people in society go to college that have to go to college because it takes that degree of learning and education to learn to do their te- their jobs like doctors and things like you that. You would not want your doctor to have a A grade education. Right. And never right. had any medical <laughs> training. You're just like, oh, I just showed up today. Let's let's exactly. do heart surgery. Good luck. It's like no, you don't want them to have some fucking training, so you won't fucking die. So, and exactly, and not just that, but having your fellow countrymen, even if it's not you, saddled with this unbelievable debt, is going to fuck up the the economy for all of us because that's people who won't who won't who will be poor and won't have money to spend on other things to keep the economy going. So even if you didn't go to college, it still would benefit you to not have college debt be such a problem. Well, now we're even moving this. Now it's even more despicable is now we're giving not just college kids and teenagers and young adults, uh, massive student loan debt. And people are going through extreme measures to either avoid it, not go to college. Um, and you got some people who are really, really smart who come from working class backgrounds. Or they like they do the poverty draft, which I know some people are like, oh, it's still poverty draft. Yes, it fucking is. I was part of that. Like, my mom said she didn't have any money for me to go to college. I saw my brother was struggling with trying to get financial aid. And he was just, it was a grind. He was just going to, like, city college. It wasn't even, like, university yet. And I was like, well, the recruiter came, and I kept blowing him off. And I finally just, you know, succumbed when my mom said she couldn't afford to send me to college. We have been just beating our heads since we were little fucking kids. You got to go to college in order to like get a you know get be successful. Blah blah blah. This is the shit they programmed to us as little kids. And when you're a little kid, you know you respect your teachers and all that stuff. You know because these are the people you look up to. They're like, oh, it's our teacher. Like you can ask any person, Brian. Who's all the who's the adults they remember most when they're little kids? Finally, 
They might hate their parents. Oh, yeah, T- teachers. But it's always, sure. like, one or two teachers that they still remember, and it can be, like, 100 years old, and they're like, Mrs. So-and-so and Mr. So-and-so was such a great teacher. I learned blah, blah, blah from them. So, like, if the teachers are giving you that when you're a little kid, then you get, you know, you're a teenager, you're still impressionable, even though you think you know everything, you want to go that way. So I was one of the people in the poverty draft. So you can be like, all oh, these people are joining the military, they're unsung heroes, but yet why do you have to join the military to get your fucking school paid for it should be free for everybody or every state university. If private schools want to charge money to go to their schools, by by no by all means, let them. They're private institutions. Let them. Fuck it. I don't care. Uh, but like state schools and stuff, that should just be paid by taxpayer money. And I'd rather my taxpayers' tax dollars go to paying for people to get their education than fucking going to the police and going to the military to blow people up or arrest people for like selling like dime bags. Um, and what's even more horrible about this country is we have something called school lunch debt. So now we're indebting children and their families when they're little kids. We can't fucking free feed little fucking kids in this country for the greatest country on earth, and we can't give them school lunches. So this is what this is what it is. I so it says about a hundred and twelve hundred districts, and ninety nine percent of them have moderate or serious concerns about uh, raised rates expiring. So in the, when the pandemic happened, they basically made all school lunches uh, universally free. But now that Biden came into office and said pandemic is over, go back to work, you peasants, they're cutting it. So now a majority of districts charge students for meals. And the loss of the federal pandemic waiver enabling them to feed all their students uh, has raised unpaid meal debt by 96%. Um, and what it says is that two thirds of districts report unpaid uh, meal debt collect, collect, collectively, totaling 19 million. By district, the debt ranged from just 15 million to 1.7 million, with a medium was about five thousand dollars. So the average of school lunch debt was about fucking five thousand dollars. You're talking about, and mostly this is impacting low income, low and uh, lower income and middle class families. Yeah, it's so. Yeah, I mean, so now, so they realized how great college, you know, uh, student loan debt was. So now they're like, oh my god, that's not even enough. Let's get them when they're fucking kids and get them in debt. You know, basically from the time they can talk. Um, it's just so insidious. It's so it's fucking evil, Brian. Just say that school districts are incurring hundreds of thousands of dollars in school meal debt that school district budgets, not school nutrition, will eventually have to cover. This takes dollars away from teaching and learning. So. We can't even fucking feed kids. Are you fucking our public schools can't like they charge like they're fucking kids. They can't control who they're and like you got politicians like, well, we can't give a universal uh, free meals because like some rich kid might might get over on the system. I, I like how they're always concerned with rich people when it comes to student loan debt and, and relieving and um, <laughs> the school lunch debt. But when it's like a bank that's fucked up the economy. They're like, oh, well, we got to give them hang handout because if they don't, the economy's going to tank and you're all going to be poor, really poor. Things are really going to be bad. Give them more money. Give them free money. Give them interest-free loans like they did during the fucking 2008 bailout. Yeah, it's it's nuts. Um, well, and so kind of the next for, one that people will be saddled with, too, is credit card debt. And I didn't realize how bad, I mean, I knew it was bad. I have credit card debt still mostly from when I went to school. So that that's what's so frustrating is like, 
So I've paid off my student loans now, but I still have credit card debt. And I the credit card debt really accumulated while I was in college because, you know, like I said, I was working, but books like per semester were like thousands of dollars. So I had to pay for school. I had to pay for my books, had to pay for where I lived. So when it all boiled down, I used my credit card a lot of times when I didn't have money to go grocery shopping and stuff. And I built it up to a point where like I'm finally starting to pay it down. But inflation is so freaking high with credit card debt. Once you get going down that that hole, it's so hard to dig yourself exactly. out. I mean, um, so I have some stats here. Um, this is from Lending Tree data on credit. Um, APRs for new credit cards average around twenty three point nine eight percent. So twenty four percent, almost a quarter of the money you'll have to pay back in interest. So that's just fucking insane. And especially I was thinking about, because I'm sure this is a lot of people's experience, these banks are so goddamn predatory. They'll push these credit cards on you the moment you turn 18. They have sign-up booths at colleges get you know, on, uh, on move-in day trying to get people to sign up for credit cards. I saw a hilarious uh, tweet that someone put out where they were like, uh, when my my senior year of high school, I went to go get a limp biscuit tattoo, and they wouldn't give it to they wouldn't give it to me because I wasn't eighteen. So I went home and punched a wall. Three weeks later, when I turned eighteen, they gave me a credit card with like you know a ten thousand dollar limit or some shit, you know. So it's like it just shows like you're at such a young, vulnerable age, eighteen. You have no idea. I mean, I, I even think about myself. Like I didn't really truly understand these interest rates and these credit cards oh, and even no. the value of like of like work of like how much i would have to work to like pay these things off like i was just used to going to school and stuff you know so it's it's crazy that they like purposely like try and get you young and it's got to insane like i'm not the only one dealing with this problem um americans total credit card balance of as of the first quarter of 2023 is 986 billion dollars the average cardholder has uh, $7,300 worth of credit card debt. So this is, again, this is just a huge, and, and who, you know, who are these people that, these, these are working class people that need these things that, you know, are going into debt. Extremely rich people just pay for shit up front, you know. Or they file bankruptcy, which this is, yeah, this, yeah. this is something my, my wife, she's an attorney, so she's smarter than me. Um, but she says that if you have you can't you can't file bankruptcy on student loan debt. Thanks to Joe Biden. So shout out to that motherfucker in the White House. Um, but if you have credit card debt um, and we'll talk about medical debt in a second, um, you can actually file um, Chapter seven bankruptcy on that. And like your credit, you know, will be hurt for like, you know, a couple years, but you won't ever have to pay that debt again. And I think the reason why more people don't do uh, file for bankruptcy is they think that if they're in debt because we talked about this earlier that you know if your financial roles are your fault not a fucking predatory system that you know kind of force you and, and also you're kind of you kind of in this society because we're b- built off debt you need credit to like buy things like that's the fucked up part about it like if, if you don't have any credit history then like, well, you can't get a house loan. We don't know how your payment history is. You can't get a car loan. We can't get a house. You can't get this. You can't, this. You can't get a business loan. Like they don't trust you. <laughs> so you need to get, you need to get in debt in order for the banks to be like, well, we can, we can lend some money to you, even more money or a loan to start a business or a loan for a home or a loan for a car. So that's the thing. So like you're fucked either way you do. So if you do have credit card debt and it's insurmountable, you can file bankruptcy. And yes, your credit score will be here to uh, hurt, but that's 
but credit scores are bullshit anyway. If you want to be honest. I mean, yeah, I mean, each individual person should make that determination on bankruptcy might be the better option, but it really is a, a catch 22. You're fucked if you do, fucked if you don't. You know, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, yeah, but if, if you owe, like, if your debt is insurmountable and, like, it's not student loan debt, and, I mean, bankruptcy, I mean, rich people do it yeah. all the time. And but then when you file for bankruptcy, you got that on your record. So getting a job, filing, you know, we're going to talk about credit scores. I mean, credit scores, I mean, it can hurt I, you, but like people have done it and it doesn't like destroy them like completely. Yeah, it's no, a, it's I, a, I agree. It's and an option that working class and middle class people don't use that often because they feel like it's a moral failing, even though Donald Trump's rich ass has been filed bankruptcy all the time. And he still kept his money because like once you file bankruptcy, right. they can't collect the debt on you anymore. So you get the debt. So if you have credit card debt, that is just one solution. It's not a perfect solution. It's not great. There's consequences to it. But the consequences are not as dire as we've been told to think. It's a temporary setback for like seven years. And not even that. Like maybe if if your credit can come back, can bounce back in like four or five years, to be totally honest. And all right. Well, since we're on this subject, let's talk about credit scores. Because I think... Another thing, well, the first thing that's funny about credit scores is they weren't, they didn't come around in their modern modern form until 1989. So credit scores are younger than me and Lornette. Like this is a new development. Um, it, it was it was done in a kind of predatory, un un government way. Like private bankers would hire people to like basically investigate people and like see their spending habits and stuff. And of course, that led to all kinds of problems so they kind of institutionalized it in in 1989 um but it it, it's very i don't know it's very like black mirror to me you know because like people always talk about that episode where um everyone's like you know commenting on your social media ranking and like whatever you ranked on social media that affects your position in society what houses and stuff you can run and they're like oh my god that's so dystopian well, we already have that in credit scores. Credit scores will affect your ability to get a loan, to get a home, to buy, you know, high high ticket essential items like cars, to have a job. I didn't know the level when we were, you know, when I was reading about credit scores for this podcast. I did not know like the degree of which companies are using credit scores to like determine how to hire people. I guess it's like 50% of companies you do look at credit scores as part of their background checks, even though it's been proven. Um, there have been numerous studies done with this, and cre- and people's credit score has no impact on their job capabilities. So, like, it, it's not a good predictor of how you'll be at your job. And it's counterintuitive because it's like, all right, well, if you have a bad credit score and you need to earn money, you need to get a job to earn money. But if you can't do that because of the credit score, then it's basically boxing you out and locking you into a, a cycle of poverty. Yeah, and it's bullshit. But proponents of it would say that the credit score was um, it was, was created to eliminate um, biases um, prior to credit scores. Like they could discriminate on you based off your race, your marital status, um, your, your class background. So the credit score was supposed to eliminate this bias. And the 1974 Equal Credit Opportunity Act Bar credit score systems from using information such as sex, marital status, national origin, religion, or um, race. However, it really didn't do that, though. I mean, that's the idea no, it, that in it theory, did the opposite. And in theory, it, it, it was like, oh, yeah, this is great. It will destroy these biases. But <laughs> it didn't. 
Um, there's another misconception. This is an author from the Washington Post. There's yet another misconception that black uh, black folks uh, that we are financially irresponsible, as evidenced by disproportionately lowered credit scores. But if you trace the root cause of poor credit histories, you'll find a pattern of dis- discriminatory discriminatory practices. Yeah, and what I learned too is that. The reason that these credit scores, although they were, you know, promoted as, oh, they're going to help stop, you know, racist banking practices and loan programs and things like that. What it didn't account for was that institutional racism for centuries and centuries had boxed black and brown people out of wealth earning opportunities. So, for example, owning a home, owning a home is one of the biggest forms of, of financial doing. capital. Yeah, exactly. And so if you start these credit scores and black and brown people due to redlining had been boxed out of having this, then that hurts their credit score. So they're, you know, they're starting from a, you know, behind the eight ball when when the program got going. So it really kind of had the opposite effect. And another thing I want to point. So uh, and well, and here's this is from the, the Economic Policy Institute. Uh, they did a study from 2004 to 2008 and found that black and Latino borrowers were four to three to four times more likely to receive higher mortgage rates, even though they had the same credit scores as white borrowers. So it really all the things that we are promised about credit scores, it, it didn't come to fruition. Oh, yeah. And I have a, a couple of personal stories about that. So um, over a decade ago, um, I, I had a car accident. And destroyed my uh, first car, which is a 97 Honda Accord. Uh, I hated that car. It was this piece of shit. But uh, I got a new Honda Civic. And my credit score, it wasn't like fantastic. But it wasn't, it wasn't like the best credit score. But it wasn't shitty. It was like at the time I bought that car, it was like 620. Which is like, all right, somewhere in the middle. It's fair. And But my interest on that car, because of my, you know, um, bank wouldn't give my my credit union navy federal wouldn't give me a, a loan they're like well your credit score is too bad it's like 620 like this bullshit i had to go with um i forget the fucking capital one and my interest was ridiculous i ended up paying like ten thousand dollars of interest on a car that was worth 16 grand so i paid like twenty five thousand dollars for a car uh all because they, they were like your credit score isn't bad and then when i was looking for a house in 2017 my credit score went up to like 640 650 and Navy Federal gave me a pre-approved loan for like twenty-five thousand. I mean, two hundred and twenty-five thousand. And in two thousand seventeen, you could buy a house in Atlanta for about one hundred and eighty thousand, eight hundred ninety thousand. At that time, nowadays, no fuck no. <laughs> you can't buy it. the housing market is fucked nowadays. Um, but at that time, you could. So when I uh, went, my wife and I found a place we wanted to close on. When I went to the bank, it was like, all right, we found a house. We want to take out the uh, $220,000 loan to, you know, to buy the house, uh, buy this house. They were like, well, that was a pre-approved loan, but we can approve you for $140,000. That's a huge, that's almost a $100,000 difference right there. And they didn't really give me any rhyme or reason why, but there are historical um, biases and, and discriminating, discrimination patterns um, because my wife and I were you know, both black. And even though Atlanta is a black ass city, they still were like, well, no. They, they pulled the rug from under me. They, they I was supposed to get a certain amount for a home loan, and they were like, well, actually, we're going to take that back. Now, they claim it was my credit score and all that, but my credit score wasn't terrible. My credit score is much better now, but that's because I have a house and I've been paying on that. And now my credit went up because I had a house. It, it's, such, it's, a, it's, such, it's, it's such a rigged system. That's the problem right there. 
Yeah, and I kind of have a, per- a personal story, too, when it comes to credit scores. So it was actually a friend of mine. So this friend of mine's an electrician. He, you know, again, incredibly, like, financially, you know, so he um, financially responsible. So he, he went into trade school uh, right after high school, got a good, jug- super great-paying um, electrician job where I think he must make, you know, six figures easy. Um paid and and just paid for everything straight up paid for his house for everything and now i forgot why but there's a situation where he needs to get a credit card now and all the companies they're like giving him like 300 500 limits on the credit cards because they're like well you have no credit history so and it's like well clearly i'm financially responsible i paid for my house i have no debt like you know everything so like it, so it, it really is a no-win system if you're if you're working class or if you're poor because you, they they they're basically forcing you into the trap of debt, and oh, it's also thing, very. Brian, if you pay off a major debt, your credit score goes down. Because I remember when I paid off that fucking car that I paid too much for, my credit score went down by like fifty or sixty points. And if I paid my student loans off or got them uh, canceled, my credit score would go down because all of a sudden, oh, you don't have all this debt. So yeah, you're right. You're damned if you do. You're damned if you don't. Well, that's what I thought when I finally paid off my student loan. I'm like, oh, my credit scars, you know, it's going to skyrocket. No, it like went up like a point or something <laughs> like it's like insane. And what's also very fucked up about credit scores um, is that they make all kinds of errors on your credit scores and then make it basically next to impossible. Like you have to work so hard to get them corrected if, if you can get them corrected at all. Um, the Consumer Financial Bureau found that all three credit score report companies habitually fail to fix credit score errors. One in seven people find an, an error on their credit score report. I'm one of those seven people. And w- what happened with me um, when I was, I can't remember if it was for the house or like for my first car after college or whatever, but they were going through my credit score and it was, and it was low at that point. And I was like, why is it so low? And they're like, oh, because you weren't paying your student loans. And I went and looked. And I was still in school when this date, you know, when I supposedly wasn't paying my student loan. So I was like, uh, I was still in school then. And they're like, okay, well, you got to call the, you know, the, the, whoever it was, whatever financial institution to get that fixed. I called them. They're like, well, you got to fix it with the school. Like I called the school. Well, you got to fix it with it. And they just kept me going back and forth until I finally gave up and was like, fuck it. Like who cares? Luckily I had either Megan or my parents to co-sign on whatever I needed, but that happens, like it says, happens to one in seven people. And while I was lucky that I had people I could rely on to get out of that situation, if you don't have people to rely on like that, that could severely fuck you from getting a house, getting a car, getting a job, whatever it may be. And it's all because there's very little regulation with these credit score companies. So we have this system that, you know, people, you know, are subject to. And then a lot of times they just will like fuck you over and there's no regulation to, to keep these three companies that do this credit core, uh, credit score reports, um, accountable. And last but not least, um, about credit scores, um, in like 2019, I believe Equifax had a big breach of cybersecurity breach where people got access to private, you know, a lot of information. So you were given an option to like, has one of the affected people, which myself, and my wife were affected. Uh, to either get like $150, like, woohoo, they someone stole your information, but you can get $150. Or like get like a, your credit score to go up like five points. And I chose the fucking money. I'm, I still have working black, working class background mindset. 
You know, Brian, I still ain't got that check. That was 2019. <laughs> God. I still ain't got that $150 check. I guess it's going to come one year. Or maybe they're just like, fuck it. They're not giving us up. But another type of... Well, that's what, yeah, go ahead. No, well, I'm just saying that's we're working class people. We don't have time to be on the fucking phone all day trying to sort this out. We have to go to work and shit, you know? Like, it's so so fucking annoying. Yeah, and, and another type of debt... debt well, I mean, all these type of debts are, are morally... Uh, Morally ho- reprehensible. <laughs> yes. Um, but the worst one, I think, in this country is medical debt. Um, people in the U.S. owe at least $195 billion in medical debt. And the bulk of that debt is owed by people with over $100,000 in debt. And there's another um, story I just read. Um, they call this they call this the diabetes belts. And these are mostly southern states. And they found that, um, and most of these are in the south. Mostly uh, the diabetes belt, which is 644 mostly southern counties with rates of disease are high. And of those counties, NPR found out that half of them have high levels of medical debt. That means just at least one in five people have medical debt in collections. That's much higher than the national rate, which is 13%. According to the Urban Institute, a social policy nonprofit in Marlboro County, for example, 37% of people have medical debt in collections. So we are, and, and most of these people are hitting our, you know, predominantly low-income black and brown people, but it can happen to every, you know, anybody um, if you are not rich and don't have a good, and even if you have health insurance, because a lot of people, I think like 90% of Americans have health insurance, some type of health insurance. Most of the time they pay for it, but they still end up in medical debt because there are certain procedures and things like that, that the medical, um, the hospital or the insurance won't cover and shit like that. Which is bullshit. Super high, once you have super high deductibles, I have health insurance, but when I started physical therapy for this concussion issue, um, I had to pay, I'm still paying off $1,000 is my deductible so I can do physical therapy. So it's like I pay all this money into insurance all year and then something comes up and I got to pay even fucking more and that's with health insurance. So it's just like system such a fucking scam. Also, all these debts feed into each other. So I, I can't remember the exact percent, but a lot of the credit card debt is people paying off medical bills. So like trading all these pe- everyone's trying to constantly like figure out how to like balance all these different debts. It's, it's so fucking nuts. And then another debt or like fee that you get charged is the most outrageous. First off, getting charged to take out your own money by the banks. Like you motherfuckers have plenty of money. And you're charging me to take out my own money? That's fucking bullshit. Um, but then they have these overdraft fees. And I used to say, don't you remember TCF Bank? Yep. Oh, those motherfuckers would get me all the time for overdraft fucking fees. And it's like, I don't have any money right now because I'm fucking a poor grad student. Or just started working and there's a fucking recession. So I'm barely like making any fucking money. And yet you're going to take more money from me and more money? Oh, God, they are. I fucking hate that it- bank they're feasting on poor people is what they're doing because it'd be very easy for them to like, all right, if you don't have the money in your account, you try and take it out and it'll just be like, Nope, sorry. Can't take that out. You don't have that amount in your account. Like it'd be that simple, but they want to prey on poor people. And I actually found this, this was a report by the consumer financial protection bureau. um, And it said banks continue to rely heavily on overdraft and non-sufficient fund revenue which reached an estimated $15.47 billion in 2019. God damn. The, direct, the director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau said, I quote, 
Rather than competing on quality service and attractive interest rates, many banks have become hooked on overdraft feeds to feed their profit model. <laughs> so, print, yeah, it's expensive to be fucking poor for, mm-hmm. for all those folks who, because this is whole mythology that poor people don't pay taxes um, in this country, which is like bullshit. You pay sales taxes. We have sales taxes. Sales taxes should be fucking illegal. You know why? Because you can just tax the rich assholes who make way more money and get revenue from them instead of the state's fucking taxing everything you fucking buy, whether it's a, a fucking pair of shoes, whether it's an apple, whether it's gas. They always fucking tax you for fucking everything. But yet, we don't have any tax money to fucking pay for healthcare or, get, or provide people universal healthcare. Or fucking even feed, feed kids at school. Nope. All that money has to go to the military. They never have fucking, they never cut in the military defense budget. That's always going up every fucking year. They, and not to mention the budget for the CIA, FBI, and fucking uh, NSA and CIA, I just call them criminals in America because they've done some shit that the fucking Nazis were proud of. You overthrow those countries. Oh, shit. Ain't fucking good for you. All in the name of corporate interest. Um, and all you have to do is read Smedley Butler's Wars of Racket from over 100 years ago. He talked about the same game that goes on nowadays for all those people who are like, Lord, you don't know what you're talking about. You're an idiot. You're stupid. Smedley Butler was a Marine Corps general. I was in the Navy, but I was not a fucking Navy admiral. So he was high up in there. So I'm like, he just spilled the beans. Um, so let's talk about, so the overdraft fees are absolute bullshit. And then we talk about mortgage property taxes. So this is what happens in the communities that start gentrifying. People are like, well, it's a good thing. You know, you bring in new revenue, bring in new people. You revitalize the community. The problem is you have people who live in these communities who might own their house, which is the most sick thing too in this country. You, you own a house, but you have property tax. And if you get to a point where you can no longer afford or pay those property taxes, the bank can come along and foreclose on your house and take your house. A house that you technically own. That you own. I mean, all my libertarian buddies, where the fuck are you motherfuckers at? You talking about personal liberty. Why the fuck aren't you railing against this bullshit idea that like if someone doesn't pay their property taxes or they fail to pay their property taxes and what happens in these gentrified neighborhoods is the original residents can't keep up with the with their rising home housing uh, property values so the property taxes go up and if some of these people are on fixed incomes, they lose their homes. Well, and that's what gets at the point of how this system controls you because the banks, the Federal Reserve, these these banks print their own money. So they make up this money out of nowhere. And then they, if you don't pay them money, they'll take your physical property. So it's a way for them to accumulate wealth. It's like, hey, we gave you this money that we made up out of thin air to as a loan to buy this home. Oh, you didn't pay us, pay it back to us? Okay, then we're going to take your home. So it's a way to, they use their imaginary paper to then take physical, tangible, and this isn't done just at a mortgage level. This is done at a, at a country level where the IMF will go in and give country loans and say, hey, here's loans for you to build, you know, water supplies and bridges and things like that. And then, oh, when you don't pay us back, oh, okay, we want you to sell us your, you know, xyz whatever it may be your actual physical tangible resources your infrastructure your buildings it's really a way to just it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a i don't know it's a property grab basically it's a way to take physical products when you just fronted imaginary nothingness but uh anything else you wanted any other kind of debts you want to do before we get into solutions well, we can talk a little bit about debtor's prison and um, how and it's, it's my well, post-slavery debtor's prison was definitely used um, not just for African-Americans, 
But um, it was basically if you owe the debt, you can you can go to jail, and that's why you had the chain gains, and you had sharecroppers who always owed the debt because the land that they sharecropped on was not theirs. They owed the money to the sharecropper to to work that land, and if they didn't, you know, pay up or they didn't make enough, you know, they didn't do good, they would end up in debtor's prison. Um, now we have the modern day in, in, incarnation of that. Uh, it's no longer sharecroppers are getting fucked over, but it's poor people. Uh, we talked about Khalif Browder uh, earlier, uh, who was waiting trial in Rackers Island um, because his family couldn't afford the bond to break, get him out of jail, uh, which is, I feel, unconstitutional. I mean, if there's, if there's guilty and pro- too proven innocent, you shouldn't go to jail until your trial. And if mm-hmm. you're found guilty, you know, by a jury of your peers, which never happens, because um, you never have your jury of your peers. <laughs> And my wife is an attorney. She can go into the details about how they select juries. And it's interesting and also depressing at the same time. Uh, but they get the dumbest people and the most, you know, idiots to, like, be on the juries to, like, make sure that they, the prosecutor can, like, fucking send that person to jail. Especially if they're poor. If you're rich, you can buy, you know, the best attorneys and get your ass off. Shout out to my boy, O.J. Simpson. <laughs> um, but now with the new debtor's prison, it's basically being so poor that you can't afford you get these fees and you end up in jail. You get so many parking tickets. You can't pay those parking tickets. They can put you in jail. You get arrested. It could be petty crime. You don't have enough money to bail you bond to get your bail bond. You're stuck in jail. There and I, there's a great article in the Atlantic uh, talking about um, St. Louis, um, and it and it goes into um, about the Dred Scott decision and kind of how it reverberates to this day. Um, St. Louis region continues to distinguish itself has once hostile place towards poor black, poor black residents. Since the killing of Michael Brown in August 2015, St. Louis and its neighboring municipalities have frequently cited legal and moral failings of the region's municipal justice system. A report released by the Department of Justice last year profiled these failings in great detail, as did a white paper released by a local nonprofit law firm called Arch City Defenders. And that said that more recently, the Department of Justice has filed a suit against the city of Ferguson after the city council rejected its proposed settlement sought to bring reforms to the police department and municipal court. The lawsuit outlines a myriad of constitutional civil rights claims ranging from violations of equal protection to in due process to patterns of unlawful arrest and excessive force. Some of these claims focus on the city's court detention and bail practices. Claims similar to those already pending against Ferguson class action lawsuit filed last year by the Art City Defenders, St. Louis University Law Clinic, and the civil rights organization Equal Justice Under Law. So basically a snapshot in Ferguson before the murder of Mike Brown and in this community, the poor black residents of Ferguson were constantly being targeted by the cops for random citations. And these citations would add up. If you don't have any money, you can't pay for these citations. And then you get other fines and then you can be arrested. So this is how modern day debtors prison uh, rears its ugly head. And they keep people locked up. So all these, all you know, the average American thinks about prison and they think about jail and like all oh, a bunch of crazy criminals. They're like the Joker or somebody all in prison. And that's like a small percentage of like people who are just like sociopaths who have no conscience and are a danger to society. But for the most part, a lot of people are in jail just because they're fucking poor. Yep. And yeah, a lot. And it's it's getting to be how like I remember when I was reading. 
about these in, uh, debtors prisons after the Civil War that like the conditions were fucking horrendous. Like a lot of the the conditions for these prisoners was like worse than when they were slaves. And it's getting to that point now where I see like the conditions of U.S. prisons are fucking horrible. Like people are dying all the fucking time because they're not getting the medical treatment they need. The conditions like I I think it was in Alabama. There was a jail where like prisoners were like legit like roasting and like burning up and dying. Well, there was was a case here in Georgia where like a man who was uh, had mental he, he was locked up for basically having a mental break. And he had like schizophrenia and his family didn't know where he was at. And he was in prison and he died in prison because not only did they give him any medical attention, but they left him in a disgusting cell and he was basically eaten alive by like bed bugs and other oh, insects. I saw that. And it was yeah. like, then they had an open, like the, the mother was like, the world needs to see what they did to my son. And it's absolutely fucking the worst. Like, Mm-hmm. And this person had mental illness, it, and, and like, and they talked about a lot of folks with schizophrenia and other mental illness end up in the criminal justice system just because like we don't have a universal healthcare system and, and resources to help those people on the lower end of the totem pole who have mental illness who can get like treatment and stuff. If we live in a just just society, they'd be able to get treatment and 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 be able to live full lives like Nathan. And even he says he struggles, and you know he he's. He, he argued that like look he's in a better place than, than many of his other you know colleagues and that's why he advocates uh, for um, individuals and this is something that's near and dear to me because you know, I have family members who um, deal with mental illness and, and who get you know um, state resources but I can't imagine them being put in prison just for having a, a break because they missed their medicine one day and then they end up dying in prison because like the conditions are there are so squalor that they're eaten alive by insects yeah fucking insane what an inhumane way to die i know <laughs> what a fucking world man it's so surreal um all right but you want to get into solutions yeah on that heavy low note let's get into solutions so what's the first solution there brian well so i i when we made the solutions i definitely saw them on a spectrum as far as there's like big picture like things ultimate goals and then like little not little things but like actual like incremental changes that we could do along the way so i think for the 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 banks we got the the first step would be to start to rein in the power of these banks and start to regulate and control them so we need to start closing the tax loopholes for them. We need to reinstate Glass-Steagall. No more corporate bailouts. We need to start taxing the banks. We need to get rid of credit scores, ban overdraft overdraft charges, um, and things like that. So th- those are kind of you know immediate things that we should be doing to rein in the financial industry. But then, do you want to talk about some of the the bigger picture ones? <laughs> you know that that. Um, I don't know, are more system, bigger system changes? Yeah, yeah. So, we, we, we you know, we, we, Brian talked about kind of those things. Um, um, so what we can do, cancel student loan debt. All right, just cancel it. It shouldn't be forgiven. Cancel student loan debt. Make all state and public colleges free or so low that it's damn near free for all students. And if the and if the private institutions still want to charge lots of money, well, so be it. Um we do it in most other so-called developed nations. The United States can do it themselves. Basically, we should definitely cancel student loan lunch debt because, like, not feeding little kids is criminal. And little kids are high school students. Like, they're children. They don't work. They don't, and they shouldn't work. I know that some Republicans and some 
probably some conservative Democrats wouldn't mind children working again, uh, like it's the 1930s or some shit. But they shouldn't work. Let them fucking have a childhood. They'll work enough in their adult life and hate it. But let them fucking have their childhood. Let them have a time in their life where they're not fucking slaving away. Um, so putting them in debt already has children or putting their families in debt is absolutely criminal and, and a shame of our nation. And we got money to fucking send Ukraine every fucking week to go to war, with, to have a proxy war with Russia. Russia. We could fucking feed kids. We shouldn't be fucking paying for war anyway. We should be fucking advocating peace. Um, but these dickwads who run the military industrial complex never met a war they don't like and never met a gun they couldn't sell. Um, also, um, we need to realize that money is made up. Um, the stock market. I had someone who works in finance tell me a stock of a company is only as valuable as the people who they all agree upon it. So let's take a Apple. Apple. Apple computers, for example. People value Apple. So therefore, their stocks are a certain value. If people all of a sudden one day decide that Apple and their products are pieces of shit, they suck. Fuck this company. And stop buying Apple computers. Their stocks would go down and go down and go down. And then the company's value would go down. And then eventually that company would go belly up. So basically, the stock market is is basically our financial system is made up, made up of faith and confidence. Nothing else. It's a wing and a prayer. So no matter how complicated dishonest economists want to make it sound, it's on a wing and a prayer. And you know how I know the financial system is like bullshit? In 2009, 2010, 2011, um, I had University of Chicago professors. I had an a uncle who worked in, in, in legal finance and a couple other folks. And these were people I consider very smart. Attorney, a, a University of Chicago professor, um, another uh, person who works in finance. These people all work in this industry. None of them could really give me a straight reason about the 2008 crash and why it happened. And what was all they were like, it was so convoluted when they tried to explain it. And I'm like, if your if a system is that convoluted, it's bullshit. And last but not least, end capitalism, which is the goal of our podcast. And I know that people be like, <laughs> well, learn it, you're in an Apple computer. This was made by capitalism. No, you fucking dipshit. This was made by a worker in Taiwan, probably for 15 cents an hour. So, kiss my ass. <laughs> The products are made by the workers. It ain't made, but fucking Steve Jobs wasn't fucking enslaving away in a goddamn Apple factory building computers from with his fucking hands. No, he had workers to do that. And these companies should pay just, their workers. I just hope to impress on people that, you know, like people talk about like, oh, that that's monopoly money or something. Our money is monopoly money. It's just all a game that we made up and that we agree to play together. And it'd be very easy to switch and start playing a new game. It's just about having the will. Right now, it's it's very hard to, you know, spread the word and let people know, like, hey, this system can be changed. We can do something else. We have all the tools we need. It's already possible. Same thing with climate change. You know, just now, today, New York looks like the fucking surface of Mars because it's so fucking red from all the forest fires from climate collapse. And, like... The, the the solutions to climate change are already in place. It's just capitalism is preventing us from using that. And it's the same situation. We can, other economic systems are possible. And I guess if I want another thing I want to impress is that like 
Be open to talking about new economic systems. Capitalism is not God. It's not going to kill you, you know, like if you talk bad about it. Like we should be open because I find it to be like the most taboo subject. Like you can talk about a bunch of different things. But then if you believe up, bring up changing capitalism, oh, my God, you're a communist, you're a socialist, you're a devil person. And it's like, why can't we talk about other economic systems? This is one system. Why not at least talk about ways to improve it through regulation and things? But ultimately, you know, it, it, the core principles of it are 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 deadly to life, basically. Like, they don't match up with nature. So it, it needs to be changed at a fundamental level. So I think it's important that we all start talking about this stuff and changing it and understand and connecting all these different movements, the the Black Lives Matter movement, the the environmental climate change movement, the medical debt, you know, movement, just all these different movements are all connected by the our monetary system. So we really need to look at that and discuss and discuss starting to change it if we want to fix all these problems that seem not to be related, but really are. Yeah. And I like how a theme that always comes up in most of our episodes is uh, universal health care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We can really use that. And I like how nowadays the Democrats are trying to like push a bill through when they had control of the House and Congress, um, I mean House and Senate in 2021 and 2022. But now that the Republicans have a majority of the House, they want to do that. Like, oh, okay, let's uh, let's do this now because it's election season. It's like you fucking fuckers. And like even That's Biden, how you know Democrats are full of shit. Oh yeah, and then my friend when Biden got elected in 2020, like, he's going to do the the public option. I'm like, no, he's fucking not because he's like. But I'm like, we could have Bernie. We could have Bernie, but, you know, Elizabeth Warren said some people sent her some snake emojis, and she was so sad because Bernie said a woman couldn't be president. Allegedly said a woman couldn't be president. Um, and she was so sad at all the snake emojis, and she lost her state by two people. She lost to Bernie and Biden in her own home state, and she's the fucking senator there. So <laughs> Bernie's not the senator of fucking Massachusetts. So it's like she was just there planted there to ape Bernie and, like, destroy his campaign. And Bernie sold his soul to the Biden administration for, I don't know, um, that's what I mean. Seeing how bad Bernie is sold out to Biden, I don't even think, even if B- Bernie had won, I don't think he would have pushed for Medicare for all. I don't think he would have got it done. Yeah. But, but I mean, the thing is, it's not no even like, know, I, guess. I think it's the, it wasn't even the fact that he could have got it done or, or would have got it. It's just, if you get to put that mindset in the mind of the people, then they think another, they can think something's possible because so many people are just like, that's just not possible. We can't do that. I have people tell us, we can't have Medicare for all. They, they won't allow it. I'm like, why? Why they want? It's more of us than it is them. So like, why do we? Yeah, let we have to make them a allow small <laughs> minority of people who just have money, like do what we say. And even with the military, the military consists of people from the fucking the communities. So like, if the fucking if we were like, what are you gonna go out there and like, well, kill your own fucking people? I mean, some people in the military probably would gleefully do that, but other people would be like, fuck this shit, and it'd be a mutiny. So you know, they they only have so much power, like. The only people that are, the only people that are always one hundred and ten percent the right hand of the oppressor is always the fucking police. They always going to do the wrong thing because they just they just well, work am, for capital. I I am excited. Just speaking of like spreading ideas and stuff, I am happy that Cornell West is running for president. So hopefully, kind of like Bernie did a little bit, opening up people's you know what they think is possible. Hopefully, Cornell Cornell will uh, kind of further that along a little bit. But uh, you want to get into quotes? Yep, let's do it. All right. Um, I guess I'll go first this time. We'll switch it up. <laughs> um, I have a quote from David Graeber, that author that uh, Lornette mentioned earlier. Um, and he said in one of his books, if history shows anything, 
It is that there is no better way to justify relations founded on violence to make such relations seem moral than by referring them in the language of debt, above all because it immediately makes it seem that it's the victim who's doing something wrong. Right on. My quote is also by David Graeber, uh, and the book is called Debt, The First 5,000 Years. I would recommend it uh, for those folks who like to read. Uh, the quote is, the criminalization of debt then was the criminalization of the very basis of human society. It cannot be overemphasized that in a small community, everyone normally was both a lender and a borrower. One can only imagine the tensions and temptations that must have existed in that in a community in communities much though they were based on love in fact because they were based on love will also always also will be full of hatred rivalry and passion when it become when it became clear that with significantly clever scheming manipulation and perhaps a bit of strategy bribery they could arrange to have almost anyone they hated in prison or even hanged truth all right um so thank you everyone for listening um please don't forget to follow us on twitter and facebook at q culture q u e culture there we share the links to the uh, all the information all the studies and books and everything we reference on the episode we'll share on our socials um you can also check out lornette's blog the evolving man project he shares stuff from question culture and some other topics and please, uh, if whatever platform you listen to us, please give us a review or a like, um, even comment or something like that. Just anything to help get us noticed will be appreciated. Thanks again for listening. And remember to question everything. Everything. Any views or opinions expressed on this podcast belong solely to Brian and Lornette and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that Brian and Lornette may or may not be associated with in any professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.